Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Multiple things in our hearts this morning, and I want to try and be as succinct as, pro- as possible and declare to you uh, what I believe God would have us here this morning. It was uh, um, an awesome experience being at the school this last week. As usual, the download of God's Word was, was great. It was very, very challenging and very, very encouraging, simultaneously so. And so um, we felt enriched, we felt ennobled. We felt invigorated, we felt enthused, encouraged, and we were cajoled, activated to proceed in that which the Lord has called us to. The school was, uh, I think, about 400 people, more or less in attendance, Um, and um, it was a wonderful compliment. I think 24 nations were represented at the school, so it's double 12, which is double apostolic. Amen. The message is indeed going visible and viral. What we've taught in isolation is now becoming normative. What we've taught in pockets in the backsides of deserts, in our smallness, is now becoming the order of the day. No more will we be relegated to that which is new, because that which is new has become, is fast becoming the norm. When the new becomes the norm, those who were exposed to the new and do not choose to embrace it, will become obsolete when the new becomes normative. You'll be so left out, so, so out of the schemes of, of, of things, that it will, it will seem as though you've missed a moment in God. Whenever God says transition, it's time to transition, we must transition. We must move as He moves. We must move when He moves. For if we don't move as He speaks to try to obey at a later date would be difficult. Because when he speaks, you obey there and then. Because in the moment of his speaking, grace is released for the obedience of the thing that he requires. Amen? So Jesus said, O Jerusalem, you've missed the day of your visitation. Samson, at a critical point of shift in the school, I think it was Wednesday evening, said the following to us, that a window of opportunity has been opened to everyone who was in attendance at the school and that decisions need to be made. Our resolutions to obey God need to be affirmed and consolidated within our spirits in that time, in that space. Call it a window, a space of grace. Time in which you have to make a decision to bring your life in compliance with God's order. And I felt the impress and the urgency of that time, I think, as everybody did. Okay? You can drop this volume a bit. I think as everybody did. Okay? And it really, really bore heavily upon our hearts. This is a day of great seriousness in the Lord. It's a day of great soberness. Frivolity must be put away from you. In other words, stop being frivolous. Stop being foolish. Stop being so full of jest that we don't know an hour of seriousness when it comes upon us. Do you know 
in Sodom and Gomorrah, the angel informed Abraham that he would destroy the city. Not so. And Abraham positioned himself before the Lord in intercession. And God kept saying, if I find 50, uh, Abraham rather kept saying, and literally bargaining with the Lord, but what about the righteous there? And uh, it went right down to, I think, five, or if, if there are at least five righteous people, um, I would spare the city, and not even five were found in the city. Um, sin had climaxed to such a degree. Abraham, remember in Second Peter, Lot is referred to as righteous Lot. Where was he living? In Sodom. It says, the soul of righteous Lot was vexed by the things he heard and the things he saw in Sodom. Sometimes you don't need to partake of sin, but simply simple exposure to it can also affect you. Lot perhaps did not partake of sodomy. Perhaps he was not involved in the, in the sexual perverse culture of the day in which he lived. But because of daily constant exposure to it, what his eyes saw and what his ears heard, the Bible says vexed his, vexed his soul. Your soul could be affected by exposure to a thing, even though you don't partake of the thing. Right? So what did Job say? Job said, I have covenanted with my eyes. I've made a pact with my eyes. He says, I've made an agreement with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a virgin. He says, when I see, to paraphrase, Job is saying, I will not undress any girl with my eyes. That's essentially what he was saying. He says, I have made a pact with my eyes that I will not look lustfully upon a virgin. Right? Now, you know that, for example, if you simply expose your eye, let's say, to pornography, the fact that you, it's, your eye is the window to your soul, for example, and if you open that window, there is going to be an impact upon the state of your soul. If you, it's not just the eye gate, it's also the, the ear gate. It says his soul was vexed by the things he saw and the things he heard in Sodom. So we've got to be careful about the kinds of things that we expose our eyes to and the kinds of things that we expose our ears to. Okay, I shared with you a verse that I shared on the church group in the week. Um, uh, Thomas quoted this at the school, Job 34, I think it is. It says, as the, the ear must test words, just as the palate tastes food. Right? The palate tastes food, so must the ear test words. So you don't just allow any word to filter through the ear gate. If you taste food, and your palate is in disagreement with the taste of the food. What do you do? You, you reject it. Not so, you reject it. There are certain foods you dislike. Not so. And so you, we have the phrase, I cannot palate it. Right? So as your taste buds cannot palate food, so your ear must test words. Okay? And be careful of it entry. But listen carefully. Although that was the case, that his soul was so affected, Peter says the soul of righteous Lot was 
vexed. Are there any righteous people in Sodom? Abram is, is interceding to God, begging God to destroy the city. When he finds out from God that the city shall nevertheless still be destroyed, at least the mercy of God still thrives in God warning Lot to leave the city. Leave the city because that city is about to be destroyed. The thing for me is that the quality of Lot's righteousness wasn't even strong enough for God to change his mind about the city. Because his righteous state had been compromised in terms of what he allowed himself to be exposed to. Okay? Remember, Noah's righteousness in his day. One man's singular righteousness changed God's mind about destroying the whole of humanity. I want to encourage you, don't underestimate the power of the righteousness of one. For by one man's disobedience, sin came into the whole world through Adam's. But the Bible says, by the obedience of one, many will be made righteous, Jesus Christ. So don't underestimate the power of your singular state of consistent rightness and correctness of behavior before the Lord. Uh, Lot's righteousness was so compromised that God chose still to destroy the city, but there was grace on Lot and his wife and their son's life in that he warned them to leave the city before this happens. Now you know the story. Here's the thing. Lot, the Bible says, calls his family together. Remember, Lot had two daughters. They were both married. The daughters were both married at the time in which they were living in, in Sodom. When Lot told his family, let's, let's leave the city because the Lord God is about to destroy the city. You know what the Bible says? It seemed, it seemed to Lot's sons-in-law that Lot was jesting, that he wasn't serious. They stayed behind. The mother and the daughters left the city. Remember as she left, she looked back and she was turned into a one last look at perversion can seal your destiny. Don't have that last look. It wasn't just to see what's going on as I leave because the city already started to be destroyed as they left. God simply wanted them out for judgment to start. It's not just a last look. It was the appeal. You see, if husbands, if you don't make a serious stand for your spirituality, what you're going to incur in your wife and, and kids is the, the, the pull and the lure of carnality upon their lives. That even though sometimes you are strong enough to go and proceed, the way you led them up to that point, they are not strong enough and they will always turn back to have a last look and they suffer the consequences. Hey, husbands, leaders of households, I want to encourage you because God respects headship. So the righteousness of the head is very, very important. Right? By your stand, by your positioning, by your determination, you, you, you say more to your family by how you live than by how you, what you say. Right? You say much more to them, and subconsciously you are imparting to them a caliber and commitment of righteousness that, that goes beyond what you will declare to them. So Lot's wife did not have the tenacity to simply leave without the last look. The amazing thing to me is, and you know the story, so the wife is dead, he lands up with these two 
daughters in a cave. In a cave. And there he commits incest with them. Notice, the sins of Sodom, which was incestuous, perverse, lesbianism, homosexuality, bestiality, all kinds of perversion under the heavens, now subtly crept into the spirit of his daughters. The option for incest was entertained. Because where did they learn that? Come on, talk to me. They learned that in a culture that went with them as they exited. And even though the mercy of God will thrive on us sometimes, sometimes how we lived and where we lived and what we permitted, what we have allowed in our view, in our family, in our lounges, in our bedrooms, the things that we permit ultimately later on will be so entrenched within the lives of our kids that things which we consider to be such an anathema, such a detestable thing, will be considered a viable option to them. And then the standards of righteousness are no longer. Right? Now here's the thing. Two sons-in-law died. Why? The righteousness of one man was compromised. Because when he warned them, the Bible says, it seemed to the sons-in-law that Lot was jesting. You see, God took away the power of his words to persuade in a moment when it was needed. I think he had jested so much up to then. He adopted such a non-serious posture up to then that when the time came to be serious, no one took him seriously. If he were a truly godly man, and, 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 if, and if his representation as the, as the mouthpiece of the Lord in his time was truly held intact, the life, listen carefully, the life of his sons-in-law could have been spared. If the lives of the sons-in-law could have been spared, incest would have probably been prevented. Moab and Ammon would not have been born. There would not have been Moabites. There would not have been Ammonites. Two nations that gave Israel some of the greatest problems in their journey. Can you see what one small act of disobedience does in its long-term effect? So we are obeying now so that we can, you know, the opposite is true. Tell your neighbor the opposite is true. Yeah, now when you adopt a righteous position, what you are fueling and empowering within your life, your family, and your sons, is you're building a legacy and a framework of obedience in their lives, which will only bear fruit generations to come. So what you do now, don't be parochial in your view of things. Have a long-term perspective. Let me just say this again. A momentary decision in time, now, will have a lasting positive impact for generations to come. Right? One decision you make in time now paves a pathway of the blessing of the Lord upon your life for many, many, many generations to come. I received this time of prayer every afternoon at the school um, last week. And one afternoon, it was actually the Wednesday afternoon, when this heavy word came from Sam that, that night. And so I realized I have two and a half hours to spare before the next session starts. We were extremely tired that day. I said, I'll sleep. I'll set my alarm. I'll sleep for an hour. I'll get up an hour before we prepare to go. So I wanted to spend time with the Father and praying. And amongst the many things I said to the Father, I said, Lord, I'm 47 years old. I literally said that. I said, I've lived almost a half a century on the planet. 
and I said this to him, may the rest of my life, the next 50 years and more, because you know I'm living to 130. You all know that. Eh? <laughs> so the next 100 years or more, let that count far more weightedly than any time I've lived up to this point. And I literally re, had a rededication. The whole prayer was rededication. I had a rededicative prayer. I said, God, use me, not, not, not for personal uh, aggrandizement, not for personal pride or ambition, but I really want to do your will. If, if it's a small part, I'm willing to play that small part. Whatever it is, let my life count. And let a whole generation be blessed by the legacy I leave. What will people remember of you when once you are dead, your name comes up? And what will the flavor and the taste of that name be in people's mouths? What will, they, what will your impact and legacy be? Amen? And so... Um, I want to encourage you, put away jesting, put away foolish talk. Because sometimes when God has to use that mouth to warn others, they will not take you seriously. Right? I'm not saying be um, uninteresting, be cold, be bland. You know we're not like that. We're some of the most joyful people to hang around with if you know us. Right? But there's a level of seriousness that we won't alter. We, we're serious about the things of the, of the Lord. Amen? We have righteousness, what does it say in order of things? Righteousness, peace, and joy. You can't have joy without righteousness being firmly established in the life. Amen? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the, in the Holy Ghost. Amen? And so the school was very, very challenging. Now in terms of where we are with our current series, we're dealing with Passover principles. And like uh, Mark said at the table of the Lord, we're examining the exodus of Israel from Egypt. Um, they were there for 430 years, and God led them out. God led them out. And um, I, I started encouraging you last week um, with, with a few things from Exodus chapter 12. I just want to read the first few verses again. Exodus chapter 12. Just the first, let's read the first few verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months to you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. If the household is too small for a lamb, he and his neighbor nearest his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. So the entirety of the lamb is to be consumed by one household. If the household is too small to consume a whole lamb, they are to, a neighbor must eat and share the lamb together with his household. There was this conscious... Um, focus upon the fact that we cannot eat it alone. And if others are unable to fully assimilate it, we will stand with them in the assimilation of all that the lamb represents. In other words, there was no individuality in the mind. There was a corporate concern that everybody, all households, assimilate all of the lamb together. 
And if you are having a problem with that, I will come alongside you and help you assimilate the lamb. Right? Everyone say corporate mentality. Right? So in this season, we were consistently encouraged. Uh, we don't think individually. We don't think selfishly. It's not me, myself, and I. If you were living in Israel at, on this day when they came out, what, what Moses stressed upon the community of Israel was there must be a corporate concern that not just you but the entire nation exoduses is led out, out, out of this place. Okay, So you had to be in your family. You had to be, it says, in a house. A lamb for a house. Last week I encouraged you, the place of immunity is in the house. The word house here is the Hebrew word bayith, which is akin to the Greek word for house, which is oikos. Both words, bayith and, ba- and, and oikos in both Hebrew and Greek, do not stress the physical structure of brick and mortar. It's not a physical dwelling. Yes, literally it was. In that culture, God said, you be in the house, you slay the lamb, the blood will be on the doorposts and on the lentil, but the spiritual application... Literally, bayith and oikos mean this. It does not allude to structure, but to the quality of relationships that exist in the house. Each house is headed by a spiritual father. The term house is an allusion to family. You cannot have family unless you have father. Fathers head families. Okay? Fathers head families. You can't have true family until you have the principle of headship, Called father. Father will lead sons. And so we kept on saying in the new dispensation that the era of church and members is obsolete. But what God is now stressing is the culture or the wineskin of father and sons. Everyone say father and sons. Now say family. Right? Family. When God says a lamb for a house, the house by Hitte. Is not the physical structure. What God was alluding to is each man in Israel must locate himself within a family, within a structure that is headed by a, a father. And the father is to slay the lamb and dispense the lamb to those uh, on the table. I want to encourage the church. Times are going to worsen. Mark my words. I'm not the only one saying it. This is a consensual view of credible prophets and apostles globally. Get ready for crisis globally. Economic crisis, there is one at the moment that no one is talking about. Right? A significant crisis that is far worse than what happened in, in 2008. This crisis is worst ever. It's going to deepen. Dark times are coming upon the earth. Isaiah 60 will become very relevant for us. Arise, shine for your Light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Verse 2 says, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the, the people. This is a season for darkness and deep darkness. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but don't say you were not told. When it happens, you're part of a church that is prophetically aware of things. Amen? Tell you never, now we know. And I want to say this boldly, your immunity, your safety, what the thing that's going to sustain you and keep you is being accurately located within a family. 
a household of faith. A church that is not an institution. A church that is a family. I will say more about this in subsequent studies. But I want to I impress it upon your spirit. Stay in the house. Uh, Pastor Thamo at the school delivered a powerful series of teachings called The City of the Living God. Hebrews 12 says this. We have not come to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion. Everyone say Zion. We have come to Mount Zion. It says, which is, amongst many things, it says Zion. We have come to Mount Zion, uh, to the general assembly, to the firstborn, general assembly of the firstborn, uh, to the church, um, to the spirits of just men made perfect. It says we have come to an innumerable company of angel angelosis, not angelic beings with wings, angelosis positioned with the word of the Lord. And it says this, we have come to the city of the living God. Right? Many people, we are the new Jerusalem. Tell your neighbor, you are the new Jerusalem. We're not looking to build the old city, Jerusalem in the Middle East, in Israel. There's a move right now where people are gathering money to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. That system or that truth is an, that's not, it's not a truth, it's an untruth. It's error. You'll be surprised at how large a segment of the church is deceived by that teaching. I was amazed. Just look at, at, at TV, go on certain internet sites. How much money is being uh, solicited in the name of God is rebuilding the church at Jerusalem in the Middle East. And the temple system of sacrifices is going to be restored. That will make the work of the cross of none effect. Right? I will explain this truth to you maybe at some time, show you all the verses. But let me just say this shortly. The Bible says the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation is that which comes down from above, from heaven. It's a descending reality. It's called the city, the new Jerusalem. And it says it comes down as a city. Everyone say, as a city. Repeat after me. The church is as a city. Right? So we poured over. Uh, Pastor Thamo read, he poured over literally tons of scripture, specifically in the book of Psalms, all paying, or referencing the city of God. The city of God. Right? And all the references indicate that God will be in this city. And that there will be protection. There will be immunity. There will be refuge and there will be safety in this city. You see, there are two realities. Do you know Roman Catholicism has truth? But truth gone wrong. Truth institutionalized. They have a Pope. What's the meaning of Pope? Papa, Father. They refer to their leaders as what? Father so-and-so. Not so? They have a principle that my leader is a, a representation of the fatherly principle. Do you know in, in, in Rome, they have the Vatican? What's that? Its own laws, its own policy, its own economic system. It's a city within a city. What is the church? That's, that's something practical pointing to a spiritual reality that actually exists. You are the city of God in the city of Durban. And let me just say this. The welfare of this city 
will be determined by its God. So even when things go horribly wrong in the city, natural, physical cities, we, the city of the living God, will be well taken care of. So tell your neighbor, don't leave this city. God is in the midst of her. Great is the Lord. Psalm, what's it, 48, I think it is, or thereabouts. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness, beautifully adorned and situated, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. Okay? Men will come to her and say, surely God is in the midst of her. Okay, I can't wait to get into this teaching. I'm almost tempted to start. I want to tell you, brethren, you are a city. We are the city. The church is as a city. I want to say this to you, then carry on with, the, with the, my own teaching here. I want to encourage you. There's an economic system that God has for His city. There's a protective policy that God has for His, for his city. You might not fully appreciate it now. All I'm saying to you, stay in the house. Stay in this culture. Stay. Therein is going to lie your immunity when crisis hits tipping point. And crisis is going to increase. Crisis is going to definitely increase. But the city of the living God will be secure. Because God is a light. Economy is by God's standards as opposed to Babylonian worldly standards. Now, quickly. I said to you, what verse did we finish on? Sorry. Let's just finish this. Verse 6. Keep it until what? The 14th day of the same month in the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. What is twilight? I shared this to you last week. It's that, it's that part of the day when the sun sets. It's just between the last light of that day and the encroaching darkness of the night of the same day. It's sunset between sunset and total evening. That's twilight. So when is the lamb to be slain at? At twilight. Um, I won't read all the other scriptures, but at midnight, God set the last plague and killed the firstborn of all of Egypt. At that point, Pharaoh gave the command to release Israel from Egyptian bondage. So they came out around about just after midnight. What is after midnight? The start of a new day. You're in the next day. One second past midnight is a new day. But go back to the previous day. When must the preparation be done at? Twilight, concluding one day, and the seeming darkness increasing. But you are still in the present day. And I said this to you. God prophetically is saying to us in this house, conclude today. Conclude this phase of your life. Conclude any outstanding matter that is happening in your present day. Don't let things be hanging unresolved, um, undecided for forever. Bring resolution and conclusion to matters. Why? Because the sun is setting upon you. Tell you never the sun is setting upon you. That's not a good prophecy, eh? <laughs> if you were in a traditional Pentecostal church, no, the sun is rising on you, brother. <laughs> no, we are saying the sun is setting. But we are saying it with what understanding? We are saying the sun is setting. Why? 
And let me just say this. There might be even an increasing darkness you're going to go into, but know this, you're going into a new day. You either stay in the twilight of the previous day or you enjoy the dawn of the new day. But to enjoy the dawn of the new day, you have to proceed in obedience. What is darkness, by the way? Darkness is indicative in the scripture of two things. Ignorance and a lack of understanding. Lack of clarity. Right? Ignorance. So sometimes God encourages us to proceed even though we don't know all the facts. But just to take the steps. Okay? And what does, we read a verse last week, Proverbs 18 says, the path of the, or the steps of the path of the righteous is what? It's like the, come on, you know the scripture, it's like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter even to the coming of the full day. Amen. You know, let me just say this to all of us. I believe some of you are going to take daring steps in some respects. I know we're taking a daring step corporately, but I'm talking to you privately now, personally. And you interpret this depending on where you are, in whatever, in family matters, in work matters, or whichever. You can apply this to anything. I declare to you, this is a word for this house. The sun is setting on your present day. God's about to close something. And things as you obey might seem to be growing darker, but know this, walk in faith. Because as you do, you're going to walk towards the light of a new day. Your new day will start one second past midnight, even though it's still dark, you will be in a new day. Don't wait for the light of the new day to, to be obvious for you to announce you are in a new day. That's why God, what did God announce to Israel? This month shall be the beginning of months for you. God recalendered them. God announced that that month was going to be their first month. Okay? And so I want to encourage you, Proceed in relative darkness, for God is about to lead you into the dawn of a new day. Who feels like newness? Come on, who wants a new thing? I feel like newness. It's not that we want new experiences for having them for their own sake. I just feel we need to have something fresh, a new challenge, a new place in God. The landscape is definitely going to change. Hey? Um, who was it? Thamo once said, I, I, I can't remember where the school said this. Oh, yes, Thamo said, the difference between inspirational te- preaching and impartational preaching. He said this, inspirational preaching will encourage you to move. Let's say from here, that corner, let's say to that corner, you'll be inspired. But you're still in the same room. Still in the same room, you've just moved from one position to another, but in the same environment. But impartational uh, preaching will, will cajole you and catapult you to move to a different place where the whole landscape and environment changes. Right? So that, that's where I am at the moment. There's a new sphere of impact that God has for all of us, and it's going to require that we comply with Him in the Spirit. Amen. Now, just quickly, I don't want to go through what we did last week, although I haven't really started anything new with you this morning. Um, I spoke to you about the necessity to, to, ink, to, to assimilate the entirety of, of the Lamb. I said to you, let's just finish read this, uh, next verse. 
I said to you, moreover, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, on the lintel of the houses, which they are to eat in it. Next verse. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they will eat it how? Come on, how must they eat it? With what kind of bread? Albany? No, no, not Albany. Bakers? No. What kind of bread? Unleavened bread. Now, and bitter herbs, right? Unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Leaven is a symbolic indication of decadent influence. What is leaven? Naturally, heaven is yeast. What does yeast do in bread? Causes it to rise. So this, 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 this attempt or tendency in humans to inflate and to puff up and to appear decadently, decadent influence, right? In fact, some versions say you must eat it with flat bread. Everyone say flat bread. It's still the same amount of dough, with, simply without the yeast, right? So you don't need to overinflate who you are. You don't need to showcase as an expression of your ambition or pride anything. Just be normal. Tell your neighbor, just be normal. Right? Just be normal. Be yourself. God loves truth and authenticity. Don't try to inflate yourself to be like somebody else. Right? But I'll, I'll explain this next week. There are five specific um, symbolic interpretations of leaven in the Bible. Let me just list them, but I'll explain these more, more thoroughly. There's what we call the leaven of Herod, which is craftiness, manipulation, and control. There's the leaven of, Jesus spoke of the leaven of the Pharisees, remember? Which is lies, hypocrisy, and acting, pretension. He says, don't, don't, don't assimilate that in your journey. Tell anyone normal lying. Normal lying, right? There's the leaven of the Sadducees, which is? Modernism, I'll explain next week, modernism. Oh, by the way, the leaven of the Pharisees could also be inaccurate teaching. Because Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, which is inaccurate doctrine, what they teach. The leaven of Corinth, you will find this in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 1 to 13. I'll, we'll read it next week. But Paul talks about leaven within the Corinthian context. And the leaven in Corinthians was sexual perversion or sexual immorality. God said, you cannot take that with you where you're going. Right? No leaven in the bread. You see, what is bread symbolic of? The Word of God. But what we're doing, many churches are taking the Word plus other forms of leaven. You've got the Word plus that. The Word plus that. So God is saying, I don't want no hypocrisy. He's saying, I don't want no um, uh, acting, no lying. I don't want no control. I don't want no manipulation. I don't want no perversion. I don't want no sexual immorality. And here's the thing. I don't want no sexual immorality, not in outward things, but in the intent and in the unseen realm of, the, of a man and a woman's mind. I want you to be sexually pure. Hmm? That's what God is saying. Tell you never maintain your sexual purity. Maintain your sexual purity. Right? We were severely, ask the guys who were at the school, we were severely challenged at the school about these matters, that God now is not judging external behavior because anybody can fool anybody externally. God is now after 
assessing what goes on in your mind where nobody can see, where nobody can view. Okay? Tell your neighbor, no leaven is coming with us. Right? No leaven is coming with us. Okay? No leaven is coming with us. The leaven of uh, leaven, you also appear in the book of Galatians. You'll see the leaven of, of, of in Galatia was legalism. And I'll, I'll talk uh, more uh, to that um, next week. But what I want to close off is encourage, and encourage you with is this. How long were they in Egyptian captivity for? 430 years. Long-standing historical bondage was to be broken in a decision of one night. One night will change history. A momentary decision can change the course of your life forever. Not so? And um, they were to leave, listen carefully, there was to be, I wrote in my notes here, there was to be a deliberate departure from the past. Do you remember on their journey, a few times they complained to Moses, why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us here? You should have left us in Egypt. And the Bible says the soul of the people longed for Egypt. Right? God was leading them somewhere, but where were the souls of the people? The moment the first hiccup happened, the moment the first obstacle, the moment the first hurdle, the first trial encountered, the people lost faith and they said, and there was this tendency in humans, there's always a tendency in humans, to whenever you are on the path towards a new place in God, and the first problem, obstacle, or hiccup, hurdle that you come to, you tend to revert to a lesser, more preferable position that is less challenging. With every phase, with every movement, in fact, with every elevation in God, will come a new warfare. You see, there are trials and things to overcome in the journey that staying in Egypt would not bring your way. Right? But if you stay in Egypt, you stay outside of God's will, and you stay outside of the scope of development of your spiritual muscle. I trained uh, uh, weight training for many years in my youth. And I know the principle of resistance. Call it resistance training uh, weights. They say, that, they say when you get over 40 years old, Weight training becomes more and more of an imperative. No pain, no, no pain, no gain. I want to encourage you, church. You see, there's a stature and a development in not your body, in your spirit, man, that God needs to develop. And the only way he's going to develop you is by some form of trial, some form of suffering, some form of resistance. The resistance that you felt in Egypt you were comfortable with, in fact, it was so predictable. Because every day you would wake up, do the same thing, an Egyptian taskmaster would cajole you, whip you. You were used to the lashes. I mean, after your, if you were born as a slave, I mean, by the 40th year, that lash means nothing to you. You've mastered that trial. You've known that order of things. But when you faced, and I like what Mark said, he did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, lest their heart quickly grow, Weary, because the Philistines were warlike, fierce men. And he led them by the way of the, the Red Sea. You see, how does God turn slaves who hadn't held a war, a weapon of war in their hands for 430 years? How is God going to engineer these men to be his fighting machine 
in the wilderness. He can't expose them to battle the first day. Not so? He realizes these are not men of war. So what God does in his mind, God is envisioning, I have to progressively develop these people. And God literally took 40 years. By the time after 40 years they came to Jericho, do you know what the men of Jericho said? Your reputation precedes you. The hearts of the men in this city quick because of you Israelites. By that time, they had developed as their training in God to such fighting machines that the fear of God, of their God, was in the hearts of the surrounding nations. Now I want to encourage you, brethren, get ready for a new level of trial that is not designed to cause you to fail. It's designed to cause you to grow to the next level. Because God wants to showcase His strength in you to others. But if you, complete, if you consistently say, why this trial, why now? Probably rather go back to Egypt to a lash from a whip from an Egyptian taskmaster. At least I know that can handle that. Why is God leading me into this now? If you consistently say that, you will never ever be a man and a woman that accomplishes destiny. Every new level, they say, has a new devil. Every new elevation has a new warfare. Who's up for the new level of warfare? Come, let me see your hands. Who's up for it? You say, God, I enlist. I might not fully understand because it's still twilight. I don't know even what we're going to fight as we go, but go we must, but we will fight because that fight is designed to shape certain, certain things in us. So leaving the past means leaving familiarity. There's a lovely verse in Isaiah 43, verse 18 and verse 19. It says the following. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder on the things of the past. You saw it's so easy to remember the wrong things. God says to Israel, if you're going to embrace newness, don't call to mind the former things you know the word ponder? The word ponder here is meditate. You're ruminating. You're not just thinking fleetingly now and then. It's a consistent, entrenched focus upon your mind. You're pondering on the things on the, on the past. Verse, verse 19 says, Behold. Everyone say, look. Look. It says, I do a new thing. Look. Behold, look. I do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? It's a question. Will you not be aware of the new thing I am doing? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and a river in the desert. It might seem like we will encounter wilderness. But God is saying, how else am I going to show you the impossible? If you stay presently in your same environment where you know possibilities to a certain degree impossibilities only happen in environment where possibilities are, cannot occur at all. Right? So God is saying, the question is, it's a question, will you not be aware of what I'm doing? But how can you access verse 19 unless you fulfill the requirements of verse 18? The requirements of verse 18 is what? Go back to it. Do not call to mind the former things. There must be a deliberate departure from the past to embrace the future. So don't let the past hold you captive. 
and prevent the newness of what I'm leading you into to embrace. Okay? Now, I'm saying this deliberately. Um, Do not be um, unduly, affectionately, soul-tied, entrapped by your loyalty and allegiance to something that God did in the past. We will always remember and thank Him for what He did in the past. But if preoccupation with the past becomes an idol, it prevents you from embracing what God wants to do in the future. Okay? I'm saying this prophetically. You know, I, 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 I see the depth of what I'm saying. I can feel it, but I can't fully understand it. God is saying, if you're not prepared to leave what you know to be familiar, what sustained you up to this point, you're even going to leave, here's the, here's the point, you're even going to leave the current flavor of trials and persecutions that you've known up to this point. I always say to people, if you're going to have new problems in 2016, or problems, at least have new ones, at least go to another level of problem. You know? don't, don't tell me, Randolph, hey, the Lord dealt with me about this thing five, ten years ago. Next year, the same thing. Next year, the same thing. My point is, when are you going to learn the lessons associated with that so you can graduate to the... Because every trial is designed to, to, to teach you certain lessons. So learn the lessons well. And you know, God is so merciful. Sam said this. Why doesn't God show you all your weaknesses all at once? He says, it'll kill you. He says, it'll literally kill you if you see yourself as you truly are. But God in his mercy, what does he do? He's a good father. Not so? He's a good father. He shows you progressively through trials the things you need to deal with. Those things come to the surface. As you deal with them, you prove yourself eligible for something more. The fact that trials and tribulations don't cease, they will never cease until final maturity, until complete perfection. It's only an indication of how seriously committed our Father is to preparing us. Amen? So tell your neighbor God is doing a new thing. But tell them, deliberately depart from the past. Deliberately depart from, from the past. There was a uh, um, serious, sober moment at the school where, I'm trying to find it in my notes here. Oh, yes, it's here. Where um, Dr. Sam said that there is a window Yes, his words, there's a window of opportunity that God is allowing us to change, to be obedient. But we must act now, he said. We must act now. For if we act when the window closes, the grace attendant with that will be removed. He spoke about three areas, and I'll leave this with you as we close. Three areas of preparation. You see, we are preparing corporately, and you're preparing privately to go to a new phase. So what are the areas you must make sure that in your life you are thoroughly prepared? Firstly, it's internal. It's you, the man. It's you, the woman. It's Randolph, the man. And everything about me in terms of my internal construct, my motivations of my heart, the contents of my, of my heart. Deal with the enemies within you before you can fight the enemies outside of you. 
deal with the issues that trip you up internally. Let me just say this. There was an announcement at the school that we are, le- we are ready for a new level of warfare. But Sam said this, when the warfare comes, you cannot, be, you cannot simultaneously fight the enemy without while fighting the enemy within. By that stage, you would have had to be sufficiently matured by them. Okay? I don't want to fight an external enemy when I still have issues of unforgiveness, for example, within my heart. I haven't mastered unforgiveness yet, but I'm facing something externally. Right? I must bring internal compliance and obedience to my life. Okay? So tell your neighbor, uh, master the enemies within you. Master the enemies within you. This is, I'm talking about the flesh nature. You have a dual nature. You have the nature of Christ and you have the nature of the old man, the flesh. Master the nature of the flesh. Do everything in your power, church, to be thoroughly compliant with what God is expecting you to be obedient of areas within you. I say this again. I'm serious about this. Be obedient. You know, Sam with authority just said, just do it. He said, just do it. Like that. Literally copying, they said, just do it. Just obey. What, why are we protracting? Right? And he said, because when the fight comes, you would have had to, by then, been so sufficiently prepared that you're not still, you know what the book of Timothy says, no man, no soldier, what does it say? Entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he might please the Lord, his master who called him. So tell your neighbor, just obey. I I beg the church. I'm begging myself. I'm talking to myself. I'm begging all of us. Let's make sure that within our personal lives, we are so thoroughly compliant. There's no duplicity within us. The second level of obedience is your sphere. Everyone say my sphere. All of you have a sphere. You have a measure of authority. Let's say in your workplace, in your family, like... Like if you're a husband, your first measure is your wife, by, by the way. And we were severely challenged about marriage in a very blunt way, might I say. <laughs> about being thoroughly compliant and being faithful to your husband and wife, both physically and in your mind. I'm saying again, be faithful to your husband and your wife, both physically and in your, and in your mind. We were challenged severely about that at the school. The next level is your family. Be faithful in your, in your family, your sphere. All of you have some measure of rule, some measure of authority. If, if you are like a class teacher like Quinton, you have a uh, classroom. If you're working in a corporate environment, you have, let's say, uh, a sphere of colleagues or maybe sub- subordinates that relate to you as a superior to which you have influence. It could be anything. For the, for the young guys, it could be a sports arena. Anywhere, listen carefully, anywhere, it could be at school, you could be in any grade with a sphere. We all have a sphere. Everyone say, I have a sphere. And I want to encourage you in your sphere, be, oh, be obedient, be disciplined in your sphere. Obey God in that measure. Do you know what? For my sphere, there will be this local church, essentially. I must make sure that in how I lead you, I'm thoroughly obedient to the Lord and complying to all of his dictates. And the, the last one is in the corporate environment. Everyone say corporate environment. 
corporate environment is the bigger, broader body of Christ. There's a city, there's the, the, the city of the living God in the corporate environment, the broader body of Christ, right? We must be obedient at that level. And um, I'll speak more to that um, maybe, maybe next week. Then, how much time have we got? Okay, we're still early. We've got 10 minutes. Amen. Then, um, Pastor Thamo ended that session. The Lord spoke to him while Sam was ministering. I'm just telling you this so that we are, we are compliant and aligned with what the expectation of God has on us now currently. Then he spoke to us from Deuteronomy chapter 20. Just put it up quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 20. I did type it up, but I think I left my that specific note at home. Let me read it from you. When you go out to battle against your enemies, see horses and you see chariots. People more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Tell you number God is with us. So God assures his people, when you see horses and chariots, and there are too many than you, don't be afraid. I will be with you. Come on, tell someone again, God is with you. Okay? And then God says this. When you are approaching the battle, and the priests come near to speak to the people, he shall say to them, Yo, Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble. Be before them. For the Lord your God is one, is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. The officers shall also speak to the people saying, who is the man? Now, what we're going to read now is the disqualification from warfare. Not everyone was permitted to go and fight. There are four categories now of people that will be disqualified, disqualified from fighting the enemy. Tell your neighbor new warfare. So what are the factors that will disqualify us? What, what, what are the things that will make us vulnerable to the enemy should we let, we let this caliber of, of guy go fight in the battle? So we're reading this prophetically now. Please understand, it's a prophetic interpretation of these scriptures, not a literal one. Okay? The first thing is, whichever man that has not built a new house and has not dedicated it, let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man will dedicate it. Now, these were natural laws in Israel. So the man has just built a new house and there's an announcement of war. In Israel, the man was not allowed to go fight. Why? His house was not dedicated to the Lord yet. He first had to, his eligibility to fight was built upon the premises that his house had to be dedicated to the Lord. Right? And we were challenged as leaders. Have we dedicated our local churches to the Lord? In a sense, we have. But um, is it God's house or is it our house? Are we able, Thamo said, to integrate this local house into the broad scheme of God's global purposes and leverage it for effective use in the global arena? Tell your neighbor we have a dedicated house. Come on, I want to encourage you, church. Remember last week I asked you, why are you here? If you're going to be part of this house, please know you've enlisted to a very serious level of warfare. You see, there are some houses that will not go to war because they haven't been dedicated over to the Lord's purposes globally. Hmm? 
Come on, tell someone again, we have a dedicated house. Eh? So I want to encourage you, are you ready to fight? Eh? Do, we have, do, we have, do we have warriors here? Or do we have members? Eh? Are you ready for the next level of trial? Yes or no? Right? Some of you are still battling with that. So you're saying, Randolph, there's another one? I'm still battling with this one here? You know, prophetically I'm saying to you, um, God's going to give you the grace to quickly overcome the things you're struggling with now. Because he knows you're part of a family that must fight a greater warfare. Amen? Say that to you prophetically. So come and say to your neighbor, we have a dedicated house. It's the Lord's house, right? It's not our house. It's the Lord's house. Secondly, quickly, who, was, who else was disqualified? Second category of person was, the man that has planted a vineyard and has not begun to use its fruit. King James says he has not started to eat from his vineyard yet. Let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in the battle and another man will begin to eat its fruit. So yeah, the classic case is the man planted a vineyard and has not had the opportunity to partake of the first grapes that the vineyard would produce. God said that man must not go fight. Why? Because he might die in the battle, his vineyard is left standing, and another man is eating of its fruit. Now you know vineyards take a very, very long time to heal fruit. A long process of painstaking uh, uh, attention to detail to grow that plant to the place where it can heal fruit. In Israel's culture, this vineyard typified sustenance. It typified reliance upon provision to secure your, your sustenance. So what was God saying? If anyone um, is still reliant upon vineyards to sustain him, that man cannot go fight. Let him rather stay with his vineyard. We were challenged with this thought at the school. Pastor Thalma said to us, if you want to stay with the vineyard, stay with your vineyard and eat of it. But quickly elevate to the place where you are able to leave a vineyard to enlist to fight and allow the Lord to provide for you in the battle and not be completely reliant upon your vineyard. I want to say this to the church again. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. But don't rely upon your vineyard to sustain you, your job, your present level of salary, the things that you rely upon for your sustenance. There is a a higher order of God's provision that He wants to bring to us. Amen? I want to encourage you. Christ is about to increase. And if that little job of yours is going to be your total reliance, it's going to be insufficient to meet the needs for where the global church is going. You're going to have to be resourced supernaturally. Tell you not to get ready for supernatural provision. I am declaring to the church, listen to me carefully, child, say this seriously, your present vineyard will not be sufficient to sustain you. Yes, you will be faithful to your workplace, but I don't know how this is going to happen. All I know is that God is able to even send a raven to Elijah at a brook in a time that he announced a famine that he brought about with the proclamation of his word. Remember? He also suffered the effects of the crisis that he announced, but a raven came to sustain him. I am convinced. So don't rely on what you know. Even your business was not a complete um, um, uh, platform enough to sustain you. It's going to have to be supernaturally God. Amen? Tell your neighbor, I believe God. I say that to you seriously. 
God can the supernaturally provide. Two last ones, quickly. The, the third category, so the undedicated house, the vineyard not eaten of, and the third category is, uh, who is the man that is engaged to a woman and has not married her? So you're still betrothed. You're engaged, not married yet. So let him depart and return to his house. Otherwise, he might die in a battle and another man would marry her. So let's say there was an engaged couple. God excluded the man from battle. Why? He said, that man cannot fight. Why? If he perhaps dies in the battle, some, another man would marry, marry his betrothed girl. Okay? So Thomas says, some of us married couples are acting like we're still engaged. The engaged person is excluded from battle. And he encouraged us spouses, married couples, to entrust your spouse and release them completely over to the work of God. Do you know what? I'll never forget the words of Marola. And someone said to her, um, thank you so much for the levels of sacrifice that you make to release your husband for almost every twice, sometimes three times in one month traveling to three different nations. Thank you for paying the price. You've paid such a price. Thank you for your sacrifice. She says, no, no, no. It's not a sacrifice. It's not at all a sacrifice. It's simply an act of obedience. You see, if you obey, if you consider the sacrifice, there's cost and pain involved. But when you know it's the will of God, there's no cost you're not willing to, to make simply to see the will of God done. Amen? I'm calling husbands and wives to release each other and to covenant with, say, we know what, what's going to be required of us in this new phase. So it will, will, it will not even be sacrificial for us. It's going to be an act of, oh, an act of obedience. Amen? Telling them an act of obedience. Amen? And the last one is, the last category of person that was excluded was, the officers shall speak further to the people, saying, whoever is the man. Okay, now this man got no house undedicated, no vineyard, he hasn't eaten, he's not engaged to nobody. What about him? He says, but if there's a man, considers himself eligible, but what? The, he says, that man is afraid and faint-hearted. Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his. So there was another category of person excluded. It was the faint and fearful. Faint-hearted and fearful. And why did God omit this guy from being part of the army? He says, don't let this guy go to war. Why? He's going to encourage others with his discouragement. The worst person to find when you are discouraged is another discouraged person. And you encourage each other with your discouragement. Right? That's the worst person. What you need when you are discouraged is one full of faith, one full of hope, one full of vum, vuma. Right? One that can encourage you. So God said, anyone who is going to be afraid in the face of the enemy must not go to war. I want to encourage you, banish fear from your system. For where we are going into, it's going to require great faith and obedience. Amen? Great faith and obedience. No fear. Tell your neighbor, no fear. Amen? Let's pray. Would you bow your heads in prayer?
with me and bring your, bring your life to the Lord. Say to the Lord in your heart, God, help me to kill the enemies within. I can't afford to fight when I'm still fighting demons within myself. But yet there's an external enemy. I'm fighting weaknesses. I'm fighting works of the flesh. There's still unforgiveness. There's still dishonor. There's so many things within me I need to sort out. Lord, help me to deal with those things quickly so that I can be eligible for the battle when, it, when I face it. I'm part of a dedicated house. I'm not going to rely upon my own vineyard. I'm relying on supernatural provision to feed me. Thank you that your name, Father, is on my forehead. I've assimilated all that the Lamb represents. I've resolved, I'm not an engaged couple to my spouse. We are married, and in our marriage, we've both committed to the warfare. Whatever it takes, Lord, we will do. We will do. And in our hearts, we are not faint-hearted. There's no ounce of fear. We're not even going to speak negatively about any transition, lest we influence others with discouragement. But we will always fuel their faith. No, we are going. Yes, we can. We can do this. Yes, we are able to fight the new giants that await us. Through resistance training, we're going to increase our spiritual muscle. I'm going to come to a new place in God. I'm going to be formidable. I'm going to be a new man. Behold, I do a new thing, declares the Lord. Forget the things that are past. Behold, I'm leading you into something brand new, something more powerful than you've ever known before. I declare to you, church, your landscape is about to change. Your whole life is about to change for many of you. God's going to shift you, not from one position in the room to another position. God's going to shift you out of the room to a new place, new environment. But there will be grace for that. Obey now, declares the Lord. Obey now. So, Father, we thank you. I pray your blessing upon everyone. I pray great grace and peace be everybody's portion. As we have listened to your word, we say yes. Yes to your word. Yes to your will. And yes to your way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.